There is something to be said about the magic of the Appalachian region. Its beauty, its wonder, its secrets. Almost heaven, they sing. But is it almost heaven because of its beauty? Or is it almost heaven because men descend from the skies like angels? Whatever the reason, there is magic in these hills and secrets waiting to be found. What follows is one of those types of stories. The story of a man living out his normal everyday life until an encounter on the highway changed it forever. November 2nd, 1966. As the rain pelted against a red-paneled Ford Econovan, Woodrow Durenberger gripped the steering wheel firmly as he headed home down I-77, just south of Marietta, Ohio. Woody heard a loud crash as one of his sewing machines he had loaded in his van toppled over, causing him to turn the dome light on and turn around. It was at this moment that he noticed a car traveling at a high rate of speed. As it passed him, he noticed that chasing this car was, as he described, a spaceship. The object began to slow down, and Woody, afraid of hitting it, pulled over to the side of the road. The object turned and blocked the Ford van, and as it came to a stop, it seemed to hover as if gravity had no effect on it. Just as this moment began to come into full realization for Woody, a hatch suddenly opened and a man stepped out of the object. With a rush, the object suddenly shot back up into the night sky and Woody sat watching in amazement as the man approached his van. Spirits podcast and the story of Indrid Cold. I would like to introduce my cohort in this adventure, Mr. Ronald Maines, who is the general manager of WTAP. TV and radio, and we are here to uh, ask this gentleman questions, and we will be asking questions for the next half hour uh, to 25 minutes. Our guest is Mr. Dernberger of route number two, Mineral Wells, West Virginia. Mr. Dernberger has a very interesting story to tell us this evening. I will give you a thumbnail sketch to begin with, whether or not you believe in unidentified flying objects or not is not the point. Whether you believe in what you hear or see 
on this program is not the point. We are here to talk to a man that allegedly did make contact with such an object within the Parkersburg area last evening, November the 2nd, 1966, at approximately 7.25 p.m. The incident allegedly took place on Interstate Highway 77 near the interchange of Route Number 47. Mr. Dornberger, in your own words, would you please relate what happened last night? Well, I was, I am a salesman and I drive a truck. And last night, uh, shortly after seven o'clock, I was coming from Marietta, Ohio, coming down Interstate 77. And just before I came to the intersection of uh, Route 47, there was a car passed me, overtaken me from behind. As soon as I had stopped, there was a door opened in the side of this vehicle, and this man stepped out and came directly to me, or came to the truck. He walked to the right-hand side of the truck, and he told me to roll down the window. He asked me to roll down the window on my right-hand side of my truck. And I'd done what he asked. And this man stood there, and he, uh, he first asked me what I was called. And I knew he meant my name, and I told him my name. And uh, he asked me, he said, uh, why are you frightened? He said, don't be frightened. We wish you no harm. He said, we mean you no harm. We wish you only happiness. And uh, I told him my name, and when I told him my name, he said he was called Cold. That was the name that he was called by. My name is Annie Weibel. I'm a paranormal investigator, podcaster, and social media host and I've dedicated more than a decade of my life to explaining the unexplainable. What you'll hear in this podcast is one of the most bizarre stories we've encountered yet, one that has changed the way we've looked at everything. And my name is Brendan Shea. For over a decade, I've been exploring the supernatural and the unexplained. This story we are about to tell was one of the first stories so many years ago that led me down this road and furthered my interest into finding some answers, some truth to what we as humans can only begin to comprehend. This podcast helps share some of these stories to all corners of the globe. We leave it up to you whether you believe it or not. My name is Connor Randall. Um, I am one of the executive producers of a series called Hellier uh, that basically my friends and I made ourselves uh, Greg Newkirk, Dana Newkirk, Carl Pfeiffer, and Tyler Strand, uh, and myself made a made a series, and uh, basically it follows this really bizarre series of emails that Greg received while he was running a paranormal blog back in 2012. As part of that, um, the injured cold story became, you know, inevitably construed, inevitably tangled in with with what was going on. Uh, in this town called Hellier, Kentucky. The fourth person that is part of this series is Tanya Durenberger Bowman. She is the daughter of the late Woodrow Durenberger, 
the man at the heart of this story. You will hear Tanya recall her memories of her father's encounter with injured cold, as well as her claims that the cold family still visits her today. But who is injured cold? The injured cold story is fascinating because it's kind of uh, opened up the gateway per se uh, for all sorts of possibilities. He is allegedly an alien who doesn't look at all like an alien in, in terms of the common context or, or the grays that most people think of. Uh, so we have to sit down and look at some possibilities here. If this individual, Indrid Cold, is actually out there, he could speak telepathically, and he came down in a spaceship, uh, we have to think about his origins. We have to wonder, I think there's two possibilities, assuming that he is real. Uh, number one, he's an extraterrestrial, actually from another galaxy um, who traveled here to Earth as an explorer, which is sort of what he told uh, Woodrow Derenberger back in 1966, uh, that he came from a planet called Lanulos. And, and so that's one possibility. The other possibility uh, that I think I might subscribe to a little bit more, more personally might be that he is what we would call uh, an ultra-terrestrial, meaning that he is an individual from another dimension altogether. And something happened in that area of the country in 1966. And maybe that interdimensional crossover occurred and, and he was able to appear. Tanya was a very young child the night her father first encountered Mr. Cold, but her recollection of that night was forever burned into her memory. Here is Tanya recalling those events. Right, well, Dad was coming home from Marietta, to Mineral Wells, West Virginia, from Marietta, Ohio. He was a uh, sewing machine salesman, and he also installed TVs and stereos. So he was coming home from work one night, it was late, rainy and he heard something fall in the back of the truck and he thought well just sewing machine fell over next thing he knew this craft came came down in front of him after a, a car had passed him and he pulled over to the firm of the road and this gentleman came out and instead of going Directly to the driver's side, he went to the passenger side and had Dad roll the window down. And he was asking Dad all kinds of questions about about the sea, about the lights, about who lived there, about what Dad did. And it really kind of frightened Dad. And nothing frightened my father. And I could tell Dad was frightened when he got home because he was as white as a sheet. And Dad always was the kind that, you know, I could stay up past my bedtime and Dad wouldn't care because he'd play games with me and jump rope and goof off and then carry me upstairs and tell me a bedtime story. Well, not that night. That night he came in and walked right past me and my brother like we weren't even there. Went in the kitchen, started talking to my mom, and my mom told him to be quiet because he, he would scare us. So she she sent us upstairs to bed, or so she thought. I was always the curious kind. I, I stuck back downstairs and listened to the whole conversation about about the, the alien, or the spaceman, as Dad put it. 
And I did have to go back upstairs soon because mom called the uh, the Wood County Sheriff's Department, who she had a, a cousin that worked for. So I had to go upstairs, and there was little alcoves I could hide in. And the Sheriff's Department came, and a guy who said he was from the Air Force, and we just had a ton of people in our house. And talking about about this this guy named Indrid Cole. Well, after everybody else left, three men knocked on the door that looked like they might be deacons from the church and told told Dad not to say anything. Well, Dad was not kind to to listen to anybody else or take direction like that from anybody else. So he went on T V the next day anyway. He went on WTAP television, and he uh, when he got home after telling his story on TV, there were little, literally hundreds of people in our yard, and I think I think they were looking for you know the 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 space guy. Oh, I know. There's so many different descriptions and so many different personas that people think that he is. I always tell people that. Um, I think Andrew Cold would could be George Hamilton's twin. And I've I've said that before too, because he kind of he kind of looks yeah like him. yeah that dark skin and but yeah he looks like George Hamilton and he's he's a very nice guy. He was a very nice guy then, and he hasn't changed one bit since since the accident. Of course, I've only seen him twice since 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 the accident. He's still trying to keep a keep kind of a low profile. One of the other things that's incredibly interesting is that um, Tanya discusses how basically Indrid Cold appeared the same throughout her life, right? Might have aged a little bit, but kind of looked like the same man, kind of looked like like George Hamilton. And that's that's where the internet lore gets it wrong. It's about how he was this pale, really scary, grinning man type. He was smiling, but... He was smiling at Derenberger in a nice way in Derenberger's initial interviews and all other reports. He's like, yeah, he was he was being friendly. But what was scary to him is he wasn't talking with his mouth initially. He was talking inside of his head. Right. So so that's that scared him. Um, but he was apparently this really handsome, very tan um, individual kind of looks like the actor George Hamilton. Right. Is, is what she is what she told us and what she said. Um the ter- the injured cold that Terry Wrist met was actually a black man, was his claim. So that brings into question, and, and Terry discusses this, about how these beings can seemingly change their characteristics um, at will to sort of fit um, whatever, you know, area or mantra they might be in at the current moment. Um it sounds like a easy, like, kind of cop-out kind of thing to be like, well, who knows who they are, you know? And it gets really conspiratorial very quickly. Um, but in the other sense, it kind of makes sense, especially in terms of liminality and especially in terms of, like, what are these individuals doing with our heads? Um, is it easy for them? Are they just projecting this into our internal minds and, and we're seeing them externally? Um I'm not sure, but 
when he had this interaction with injured cold, he basically said that he found him based off of all of these clues that when he plugged in the cipher value of, of injured cold, which was, um, 112, um, it meant, you know, all of these different words that he found a physical locale related to in Ashland, Kentucky. Um, and he talked with this guy and he said, I'll, I'll read actually from the interview himself. Terry, Terry says, in the interview, a guy with one big difference from the descriptions walk, walks up like he had been waiting. I didn't knock, and I said, Mr. Cold, I presume? He smiled, and he said, my friends call me Indrid. Which is, again, very cool. Could have actually happened if we believe this, but then Alan Greenfield asks him, let me guess. He was a black guy. The blondes can be black. And then Terry Riss talks about some more like alien theory top stuff. Uh, type of stuff and then he says basically they have the same racial features and range that we do and can project features at will as cold did for darren Berger in the interest of security and uh after that they discuss how they sat down and talked about how he injured cold and his friends are basically have basically been in hiding um as fugitives from the grays right so uh perhaps if he's appearing to tanya and has been throughout her life He's looking the same way he always has for her comfort, for her security. Beginning in 1966, in the quaint town of Point Pleasant, West Virginia, about an hour away from Woody Derenberger's first meeting with Indrid Cold, bizarre occurrences began. On November 12, 1966, five gravediggers on the outskirt of Point Pleasant reported seeing a large, winged creature with bright red eyes flying through the trees just above them. Three days later, November 15, 1966, a man named Newell Partridge was at home watching television at around 10.30 p.m. when his television began to malfunction, broadcasting a bizarre static. At that moment, he heard what sounded like a generator turning on outside his house, and his dog, Bandit, stood barking at the front door. As Partridge opened the door, Bandit took off for the barn. Partridge followed. As Partridge flashed his light into the barn, all he could see was what he described as two large, red, glowing eyes staring back at him. Terrified, Partridge ran for the house to grab his gun, but once inside, was too terrified to return to the barn and confront the creature. Partridge claimed that he never saw Bandit again. That same night, a few miles away near the TNT bunker area, Two young couples were out for an evening cruise when they encountered the enormous winged creature. Roger and Linda Scarberry and Steve and Mary Millette were driving along Ohio River Road headed towards the TNT area. When they spotted what they described as a large, humanoid creature standing alongside the road close to the local power plant. The creature was larger than a human, with huge, bat-like wings folded behind its back and large, red eyes. The terrified couple sped off in the direction of Point Pleasant and the creature followed. They claimed they reached nearly 100 miles an hour as they drove back towards town, and the creature had no trouble keeping up with them, flying above or alongside their car. The creature only backed off as they reached downtown Point Pleasant and then vanished. The Scarberries and the Millettes claimed they immediately drove to the courthouse to report their encounter to the Sheriff's Department. Over the next year, more than 100 residents of Point Pleasant and the surrounding areas 
claimed to have seen the terrifying creature with a 10-foot wingspan and glowing red eyes. The sightings reached a pinnacle in 1967, but in December of that year, the town of Point Pleasant would be stricken with tragedy that turned all the attention away from the winged creature. On Friday, December 15, 1967, during the height of evening rush hour traffic, the silver bridge that connected the towns of Point Pleasant, West Virginia to Gallipolis, Ohio, collapsed. 31 vehicles plunged into the icy depths of the Ohio River below. 46 people were killed, crushed by the collapse of the bridge or drowning in the swift, dark water. In the coming weeks, bridge inspectors and investigators would state that the bridge, built in 1928, had collapsed due to a failed eye bar and joint weld, the weight of the cars on the bridge proving too much to withstand. The townspeople of Point Pleasant claimed that, after the collapse of the Silver Bridge, all sightings of the Mothman ceased. What is Indra Cold's connection to the Mothman? Mm -hmm. I know you kind of talked about that a little bit in Hellier, but uh, you, you know, we didn't get a whole big story, but I have always thought that maybe it's something, there's a connection there. So Mm -hmm. the entire Indrid Cold saga, right, begins on on November 2nd of 1966, which is when Darren Berger, uh, who was a seemingly very innocent sewing machine salesman, was driving his van up the highway. Uh, he was on Interstate 77 in the series. One of the coolest parts I got to sit down and and actually pull over to the side of the highway where we sort of approximated this actual interaction took place. And he has this in bizarre encounter with this man who steps out of a craft that basically cut his car off in the highway and goes home, tells his family, is all shaken up. And then the next night, um, he actually did a radio interview where he where he discussed what had happened. And that was... November 2nd and 3rd, 1966. It was actually less than two weeks later. Um, I think some of the first Mothman reports started happening on November 12th and then continued through there, um, late of ni- late 1966 all the way up into, you know, 1967 and early 1968 is, is sort of when the height of a lot of these Mothman sightings were allegedly occurring. Now, we have to wonder what this connection could be. I don't think anybody obviously really knows the answer. I don't think that John Keel, who was there on the ground interviewing all these witnesses, had the answer either. Um, they sort of became connected because they're both discussed in John Keel's book, right? The events in Point Pleasant, West Virginia, caught the attention of American journalist and author John Keel. By 1975, Keel had published his now famous book, The Mothman Prophecies stating that while investigating the occurrences, he began experiencing unusual phenomena. Strange phone calls, visits from men in black Cadillacs, phone messages and mail intercepted and sent back to him without explanation, and precognitive dreams. Um, In one chapter, which personally I think is one of the coolest uh, chapter titles ever, uh, is called The Cold That Came Down in the Rain. And that's the story of Indrid Cold. That's one of the chapters in in the Mothman uh, book, the Mothman Prophecies. And then he also continues to interview all of these witnesses to this being. Now, they are about an hour, hour and a half apart um, between Parkersburg, where this encounter occurred, and Point Pleasant, um, which is where the majority of the Mothman sightings were. Allegedly, the first Mothman sighting was in a town, I think it's pronounced... 
Clendenin, uh, West Virginia, and that town is is might be where the first sighting occurred, but they're about an hour and a half away. Are they related? Well, here's what's strange. Even if you sit down and you look at it from a really skeptical standpoint and say, I don't think I believe Woodrow Derenberger, we cannot deny that Derenberger was first, that Derenberger was the first person to come forward and say, I had this bizarre circumstance happen in this little tri-state area, right, in this area. And then all of these slew of strange happenings started to occur. Of course, they were two different beings. We're talking about this alien being, Indrid Cold, who knew these things he shouldn't know, who was able to sit and talk with his family and watched Woodrow apparently for, for years later. And then we're talking about Mothman, this big sort of cryptid type creature. I don't know if the creatures or the beings, I should say, are connected, but you can't deny that the timeline is extremely suspicious. Where you get into another theory that, that I and I think a lot of people are incredibly interested in called window areas, right? So John Keel talked about how occasionally there could be these circumstances and we don't know how exactly it occurs. Obviously, if we did, I'm sure a lot of, you know, holes in the space-time continuum or, or other dimensions might open up more frequently. But um, where these areas open up, and I'm talking about a physical area, a physical locale, a part of the country or a city um, opens up to all sorts of manner of high strangeness. And then after a period of time, it closes back down again. Maybe Indrid Cold was the beginning of, of that opening. It's just so happened that was our house interviewing Dad and investigating the uh, sighting of Indrid Cold when the Mothman whole whole mothman thing came up dad really didn't you know think one thing or another about mothman he was he was too busy um with with his own stuff with people you know calling him crazy and having to go through all kinds of testing and fact, we even had to go to um cape canaveral's where he had to go through some government testing to check to make sure he didn't have epilepsy or he wasn't crazy. So we, we had our own stuff going on to, you know, we had too much of our own stuff going on to, to give the Mothman much credence. The question still remains as to whether or not John Kill believed Woody Derenberger's story. Tanya recounted her thoughts on the matter and remembered an experience with Kill investigating strange lights behind their house. Now, he, he I don't know if he believed that or not. Um, he seemed to. Because we'd go, we, one night we were out in the back of the farmhouse and there were, there were lights up in the sky in the distance. And he said he was going to take a walk to see if that was a road or what that was. And we tried telling him not to go that way because next farmhouse over, there was a, a bull in the, in a pen. And somehow he got over the fence and he got met by the bull. And it came back all muddy. Ouch. <laughs> but, yeah. But I think he realized after that, that that no, there was no road up there. Because at the time, there wasn't a road. That the, but, those were truly like the sky. Aside from the Derenberger's encounter with injured cold, his family was also visited by what are now known as the Men in Black. 
Thought by many to be part of some secret government agency, their origins actually go back hundreds of years. These strange people seem to make themselves known after an encounter by an eyewitness of a UFO or some extraterrestrial contact. Men in Black sightings during this time were not uncommon throughout Point Pleasant and other parts of West Virginia. Residents of these rural communities came forward to John Keel, claiming they had run-ins with strange men dressed in dark suits and ties. They described them as tan skin, sometimes bald or wearing wigs and sunglasses. They would visit people whom had claimed to have seen Mothman or other strange things in the sky. John Keel would later coin the abbreviation M.I.B. Keel also stated that maybe some of the M.I.B. encounters could be explained as, quote, miscast entirely mundane events perpetuated through local folklore. As Keel himself was once mistaken as a man in black after he was searching for a phone in rural West Virginia to call a tow truck. Tanya remembered unknown men arriving at their house in the days after her father's encounter with Indred. As a child, she believed they were clergy from the local church. Now, she actually believes they may have been men in black. Yeah, that, that's what I believe it to be. Of course, at the time, I was only four years old. But and a lot of people have said, well, how do you know that, you know, you, you, those are your memories or what you were told? And believe me, something like that, even if you're at four years old, you remember. What follows is an excerpt from the book, The Mothman Prophecies, written by John Keel. Chapter 8, Procession of the Dam While Mothman and Injured Cold attracted all the publicity and turned everyone's eyes to the deep skies of the night, the strange ones began to arrive in West Virginia. They troped down from the hills along the muddy back roads, up from the winding hollers, like an army of leprechauns seeking improvised shoemakers. It was open season on the human race, and so the ancient procession of the dam marched once more. A doctor and his wife driving along a country road in a snowstorm saw a huge, caped figure of a man struggling through the snow, so they stopped to give him a ride. He vanished. There was nothing but whirling snow and the night where he had stood. Black limousines halted in front of the hill homes and deeply tanned census takers inquired about the number of children living with the families. Always the children. In several instances, the occupants of the big black cars merely asked for a glass of water, the old fairy trick taken up from the Middle Ages and dusted off. A blonde woman in her 30s, well-groomed with a soft-spoken accent, visited people in Ohio and West Virginia, where I had interviewed. She introduced herself as John Keel's secretary, thus winning instant admission. The clipboard she carried held a completed form filled with personal questions about the witness's health, income, the type of cars they owned, their general family background, and some fairly sophisticated questions about their UFO sightings, but not the type of questions a run-of-the-mill UFO buff would ask. I have no secretary, and I didn't learn about this woman until months later, when one of my friends in Ohio wrote to me and happened to mention, as I told your secretary when she was here, then I checked and found out she had visited many people and most of whom I had never mentioned in print. How had she located them?
Why do you think it's this area? Why? Everyone says it's the Appalachian Mountains, but I know mm-hmm. we touched on this last time and when we interviewed you, but it's just it's crazy that the amount of stuff that happens in this area is just it's unreal. And I don't it's it's confusing. <laughs> it's very confusing. I when I think about the I look at my, you know, maps with pins in them and I realize how many of them sit in that portion of the country, the portion of the country that, that you reside in, right? So um, people, and Tanya said this to us as well. She said, I think that it's that it's the mountains, that it's the hills, that they can hide here. She may be correct. Um, I guess that that kind of makes sense. I think that there's a whole, if you want to be in hiding, it's a pretty easy area of the country to be in hiding because it's a whole... There's a lot of sort of privatized property, like um, this is my area. There's haulers that are tucked all throughout the hills in that area. Oh, yeah. Um, That, yeah, right? And it's, you know, it's kind of, in a sense, comforting and in a sense, kind of spooky. Like, we don't know what's, we don't know who's out there, what's out there. Um, I live in Colorado. And so when you say, oh, they can hide in the mountains, you know, I look at my window and I'm like, well, if I'm, looking at a map from space, I would come to these mountains, you know? Um, there's a whole lot more big crevices to hide in um, in the United States of America and throughout the world than there is in the Appalachian uh, mountains and, and hills out there. So what else could it be? The Appalachians is a cultural region in the eastern United States. It stretches from the southern part of New York to northern Alabama and Georgia. The heart of this region lies in West Virginia, About 78% of West Virginia is made up of dense forests of mountainous terrain. Appalachia has been a land full of mystery for thousands of years. Strange stories go back to even the Native American legends. It is believed because of its such sparsely populated land that this is why secrets can remain hidden here. This region is rich in natural resources that are often believed to play a role in why so many strange things are seen in the sky. So why would injured cold choose the Appalachian region? I asked Tanya. Because there's so many places to hide. It's so easy to hide there. Oh yes, of course. He told my father and he told me years ago that as long as he were around, and any of his family was around, no physical harm would come to me, that I would always be safe. Exactly what he meant by that, I'm not sure, but I do know that I, I, you know, I still believe that. As we discussed before, there has been many theories that natural resources play a vital role in why so many strange things happen in the Appalachian region. One of those theories is liminality. Here's Connor to explain. Part of the theory that we get into is this idea of um, liminality, right? That paranormal experiences are tied to um, basically places, people, and things that are sort of in between. I think that there is a pretty good case that can be made for that portion of the country being one of the most, if not the most, liminal areas. And when I'm talking about that, I actually mean in a physical locale sense. Um, you have rivers running throughout everything. Rivers have their own whole connection to paranormal activity. And not only on those rivers, but on those rivers are these bridges and these borders. And that's what we like to sit and speculate on all the time is bridges and borders. Uh, What is it about those spots that 
enable more activity to occur? I don't necessarily obviously have the answer, but in speculation, um, you look at these towns and these places where it occurs. Most of it is on border towns between two states. Most of it, that border is made by a river. And so when people, I think it's possible that when people are crossing over the river, they're literally seeing signs that say, welcome to Ohio, welcome to Kentucky. And maybe, just maybe, that actually shakes up enough in the in the human consciousness that they are now realizing that they're in a physical place of transitioning and in that transition who knows while the brain or the consciousness is a little wobbly like that it's just the perfect time or place for this this high strangeness to poke through Injured Cold may have been the first spaceman to make contact with Woodrow Durenberger, but he was not alone. Riding along with Cold were his first mates, Carl Ardo and Demo Hassan. At their second meeting, Woody was introduced to these other men, claiming they were from a planet much like our own. The planet was called Lanulos and was filled with vast rolling fields, oceans, and rivers. Lanulos was a peaceful planet with no hate or wars, and Woodrow himself would be taken here on May 11, 1967. Lanulos was located in the constellation Ganymede, and unknown to Woody at this time, he would not be the first one to make contact with the people from Lanulos. Upon his arrival to this planet, Woody was not only introduced to more of Cold's shipmates, but also his wife Kimmy and his sons, Connard and Connor. The Cold family, as well as Carl Ardo's family, became part of the Durenberger's life. Tanya recounts this time and explains how these people became and changed their lives forever. Well, I would say it changed my life in, in a lot of ways. It opened my eyes to the fact that we're not alone in this world. And anybody who thinks that planet Earth, that this is the only, this is the only life, force they're wrong uh Andrew used to bring his 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 boys over with him and his one um shipmate Carl Ardo brought his daughter one one day and we were playing and theirs is a peaceful planet and I brought out my brother's toy guns and it's really scared them so I had to put them away very quickly but like I said theirs is a peaceful planet and they used to come by quite often. Well, the boys did. Girls did, weren't really allowed to, to go to places. But he did, I mean, he did bring his whole family at one time. His wife, Kimmy, and his, and his baby. And for, and for years, they would come, he would come by and talk to dad on the porch and play with me. And we just got the... I'll be really good friends, and we still are. Well, Carl Ardo was kind of like his first mate, best man type of thing. Um, he helped to pilot the ship with with Andred, and and Kimmy was was Andred's wife. I mean, the boys boys and Andred for years would come and see me on my birthday and. You know, special occasions, Easter, 
Christmas, Mother's Day, all kinds of, you know, just whatever holiday you think of, especially after I, after I got my divorce. The question that was raised by us was this. Could the Durenbergers have been just one of many families that knew the being known as injured cold? Tanya answers this question briefly. I've never heard anything or met anyone, so I really couldn't tell you. We know that Woody became friends with another man who was also promised a place on Lanulos, and he too had met Cold, Ardo, and Hassan on several occasions. This man's name was Kevon Shaw, also from Parkersburg, West Virginia, and he and Woody became fast friends. Woody wrote in his book, Visitors from Lanulos, quote, I became very good friends with Kevon, and he was the first person on earth I was able to communicate with telepathically, end quote which leads to the belief that the Durenbergers could not have been alone in meeting the visitors from Lanulos. But that will be something we discuss at a later time. Besides making contact with people from Earth, it is believed and spoken about by Woody Durenberger that Indrid Cold was a protector, and he was here to help defend Earth's people from other alien invaders that meant to do harm to humanity. One of these races were known as humanoids. Once Woody was stopped on a highway and approached by one of these beings that tried to rob Woody of his possessions, but their plan was thwarted by injured cold, who simply told these beings that they cannot just come and take whatever they want. Humanoids are not very nice people, and they were chasing the humanoids out of the galaxy and away from Earth because when I was younger, my dad told me stories about how humanoids would come down to Earth and they kind of, you know, whatever they wanted, they took. So, Indrid was kind of the uh, security, so to speak, to make sure the humanoids stayed, stayed away. In 2018, a post appeared on Tanya's Beyond Lanulos page saying that Indrid Cold was dead. The next clip is Tanya describing... That post, an injured cold son's visiting her to give her the tragic news. Back in 2018, and I had put this on my Facebook, I had received two visitors at a nursing home I was living in in the middle of the night who came to me and told me that Indrid had been into a horrible accident and he was believed to be dead. Well, I have, in the last few months, I've learned that's not true, that he's not dead, and he was hiding in the Appalachian Mountains while he healed. It was just like, a friend of mine described it as, described the boys coming to see me as it, as if somebody from the military were bringing you bad news. I mean, the boys believed it, or if they didn't believe it, they certainly made me believe it. Unfortunately, Carl did pass away. And so did Demo Hassan. Those are his two first mates. They did pass away in the wreckage, but Indrid managed to get out just very badly burned. Where do you think Indrid Cole is now? Tanya Derenberger has been very close to Indrid Cole throughout her life, right? So um, she claims, and she's she's a very nice woman who sits down and, and is willing to tell these stories, Um about her experiences throughout her life with this with this man with this being uh i think maybe my favorite story of hers is of that initial encounter 
um, when her dad came home and she remembers him being as white as a ghost, you know, and, and after he had met this man who, who talked to him telepathically through on the highway, on the side of the highway, um, that really shook up their whole their whole family. And and I think it changed a lot for them. And it obviously changed a lot through Derenberger, as we find out through his books. So we have to wonder, which one is reality? Is the Derenberger intercold the reality? Is, is Terry Riss intercold the reality? Is it neither of them? Or is it a combination of both? I'm not sure that Indrid Cold is, I don't want to go and say that he's dead. It's possible that he did die in a crash. It gets to a point just like witness, you know, any sort of witness, you have to sort of say, you know, what's the reality of what occurred here. But I think that if I'm putting on sort of my hellier investigator hat, we have to say that if Indrid Cold was still out there in 2012, 2013, and he was, and he was hiding, that it doesn't seem that far-fetched with a being that it can apparently live a very long time, that six or seven years later, he's still out there. Throughout this series, you have heard the name Terry Rist several times. And it is a name that through Connor and the series Hellier, that this person has become entangled with the injured cold story. The Terry Rist story is not ours to tell, however. But we believe because of his personal ties to this part of the story, it is only right that Connor explain who this person is and how he became part of its saga. But uh, who is Terry R. Rist and what is his connection to Injury Cold? Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me get out. I actually have his email right here in front of me. So uh, in 2012, my friend Greg Newkirk was was running a blog called Who Forded, which was kind of a tongue-in-cheek joke about Fortean phenomena, um, sort of the idea of high strangeness. And he received a series of emails from a man, um, actually on a separate email that he was running uh, for his ghost hunting club from when he was a child, um, from this man named David Christie. David Christie basically explained that he was being bombarded by these beings in his house in rural Kentucky, these little goblin-like, um, kind of similar to the Hopkinsville goblins, but without the big pointy ears, these beings would come out of the woods behind his property and tap on his kids' windows and tear up his yard. And he was just, and nobody was believing him. And he basically sent all of this really detailed information, footprints, photos, all that to Greg as a plea for help. And, uh, Greg said, how did you get my information? in response to to all of this because it was such a strange sort of defunct email that this was sent to and basically david christie responded to greg right after that and said oh i got your email from a mutual friend of ours terry r wrist now greg of course cannot think of somebody named terry r wrist when you put it together it sounds like a play on the word terrorist so it's kind of scary and couldn't understand what that meant well, it turns out he found out that Terry R. Rist is actually an individual who's mentioned in an interview in this bizarre book called Secret Cipher of the Euphonauts that was published in 1994 that's basically about using secret codes and ciphers to contact um, extraterrestrials and ultraterrestrials. There's an interview with a man in that book named Terry R. Rist. And in that interview, in that book, this man, Terry R. Rist, talks about how he met Indrid Cold, the famous being from, from the Mothman saga. Uh, and the way that he met him was using this cipher work 
to actually go out and uh, find where he was living. I think that a lot of people who watch Hellier or those who haven't watched Hellier, maybe you're interested to see it now, but I would hope. But but basically, people don't quite understand the use of the cipher. People will apply it to all sorts of things. The cipher is, and the whole book is basically about using aliens' names, the beings that these, that sorry, the names that these beings give to individuals as a sort of address, right? So according to this book, which is by Alan Greenfield, when Indrid Cold came down and he spoke to Woodrow Derenberger, he said, my name is Cold initially. And then after that, he said his full name. My name is Indrid Cold. According to Alan Greenfield, his hypothesis is that when a being like that gives its name to a human like us, what they are actually giving is a series of coded information. And if you take that name and apply it through a numerical cipher and figure out what that means, you can apply it to all sorts of different occult texts. Mainly the Book of the Law uh, was his idea. And you can actually use those clues to find out more about the alien and maybe even to find out where they are physically on Earth. And so in, uh, Terry Rist is a man who claims that he met Indrid Colt through that, through that whole circumstance. Um, the interview is bizarre, but incredibly detailed. And so we actually tracked, basically tracked down where we think this meeting occurred, um, which was in Ashland, Kentucky. We think that even though they never say it in the interview, that the clues led to the town of Ashland, Kentucky. Uh, and so that's that's sort of one of the things that we discuss in the series. And um, it gets even more bizarre when Terry Rist actually sent an email to Greg back in 2013 after after Greg received the initial contact from David. And in the email, he says, the ink and black are isolated still and third order MIA, which is a again, did not make any sense to Greg in the moment, but after a lot of time and realizing this connection to this individual, um, he's basically saying Indrid Cold is still here on Earth and nobody has come down to rescue him. Tani was interviewed as part of the Hellier series, and after watching it, she believes that Indrid Cold is being impersonated by others. Here she is to explain what she believes. Oh, of course I do. I mean, I've gone online before, and I've Googled injured cold and come up with all sorts of different things. Fans named injured cold and other people calling themselves injured cold. And so, of course, I, I completely believe that somebody could be out there posing as him. I've binge, I've binge watched Hellier several times, season one and season two. And it's fantastic. And I can, it is fantastic, but I can also tell you for a fact that Terry Rist does not exist. What do you think? What do you think it is? You think it's just a, uh, a pseudonym for somebody who's like almost like a disinformation agent? Probably. But I do know that I was I was here at home one night and I was watching it and Indrid Cold showed up and we were watching it together and he said he'd never met anybody named Terry Rist. He doesn't know what 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 the guy's talking about. Or Dave, or or that Doctor Christie, in talking to Indrid, I th we think that very well could be a humanoid, or someone who's trying to trying to make light of his of his mission uh, of peace and harmony. 
what truth is there to the story of Terry Rist versus the story of Woodrow Derenberger, we pretty quickly realized that here in this sort of modern day mantra of the Indrid Cold Saga, there are two distinct individuals. It seems that the Indrid Cold that the Derenberger discuss talks with is is very nice and innocent kind of family man spreading a message of peace and joy. Whereas the Indrid Cold that Terry Rist claims to have met was actually sort of a fugitive, uh, quote unquote, who is hiding uh, from the greys, uh, who is uh, an alien hiding from other aliens who came down to Earth and is basically shooed up in the uh, in the mountains of, you know, West Virginia, Kentucky, that whole area. And it's possible that he appears different ways to these individuals, um, et cetera, et cetera. What the reality is, I'm not sure. Maybe Indrid Cold was hiding or was a fugitive all along and was putting on, you know, sort of an affront for the Derenberger family. I'm not sure that that's the case, uh, but it's very fun to speculate. What can we take away from this story? Others have ventured far to disprove it, to discredit those involved. While others have unearthed clues and put together pieces of a puzzle some never thought could be solved. As I said at the very start of this story, it is up to you whether you want to believe it or not. I think Connor says it best. I'll leave you with, a, with I guess, a final thought that I sit and wrestle with, and I know the rest of, of the team does as well, when they think about this entire Indrid Cold saga. It is difficult to separate the... Derenberger tale of Indrid Cold from the Terry Wrist tale of Indrid Cold. But one of the important details that I think is looked over um, or hasn't been noticed possibly by some people is that in the initial interview that Woodrow Derenberger gives about his experiences, um, he said that, and this was the night after it occurred, he said that a man introduced himself and said, uh, you may call me cold or my name is cold along those lines. He didn't say his full name. He doesn't, if you read Woodrow Derenberger's book, he actually doesn't say his full name as Indrid Cold until later on when they're talking, I believe, on the back of Woodrow's porch when, when he visits, you know, the Derenberger family after the initial encounter. So, People look at Woodrow Derenberger's story and find it incredibly difficult to believe and kind of toss it out, I think maybe sometimes a little bit too early. I mean, I put on a skeptical hat just as much, if not more, than a lot of people um, in this field. But if we start to rely more on the and think that the Terry R. Wrist injured cold is is more legitimate, um, not necessarily than Derenberger, but at least there's something, there's at least physical clues that we can follow. He found all of that based off the full name, Indrid Cold. <laughs> and so what portions of that entire Derenberger saga, you know, um, are true or not true? And perhaps if it's the entire, perhaps the whole thing is. So, so it's something that I've thought about a lot and something that I kind of sit and wonder on is that I'm not sure you can really separate the two. Fifty-four years have passed since Woody Derenberger's meeting with the man named Cold on a dark, lonely stretch of highway in West Virginia. Memories have begun to fade. 
eyewitnesses passing through and leaving this existence for whatever lies beyond, leaving behind them a trail of stories, like breadcrumbs for future generations to follow to the truth. Woody Derenberger passed away in 1990 and was buried in a small grave in his hometown of Mineral Wells. John Keel died in 2009. The works and stories of both men have inspired hundreds of publications, movies, and documentaries detailing their experiences and beliefs. But were their stories just that? Fantastic stories told throughout decades to thrill listeners? Or was there more to their stories? Facts that seem too unbelievable to believe. Encounters that might still be occurring today. Was this the ending to their stories? For Derenberger and Kiel, this was their ending. But for us, it was just the beginning. Can you hear me now? Here you. I mean, I'm terrible at this with these things. I was gonna say, tell tell Annie the story with so she can hear exactly what he and you're okay. feeling. And I said, can I ask you another question? He's like, sure. And I was like, hey, uh, what about beings? I said, like aliens, if you want to call them, or you know, have you ever heard of any any correlation between? EBEs, they call them extra, extraterrestrial biological entities. Do you ever, do you ever hear of any correlation with the EBEs, certain types of craft, and say someone? And this is the way I said it to him. I said, and say somebody like, you know, Mothman, Men in Black, or Ingrid Cole. And he, he, it, it was dead silence. I, I, so I thought that he, it was almost like he hung up. And I, so I said, and he was like, yeah. I said, and I repeated it to him. I said, do you think that there's any correlation? I said, have you ever come across that? Has anybody ever said anything to you about, you know, like anything Mothman related, Ingrid Cole, Black Men in Black? And he says to me, uh, aliens. He says, my fourth wife is an alien and I have to go. This has been part one of the Serial Spirits podcast, The Ingrid Cold Story. A very special thanks to Tanya Durnberger Bowman, and as always, Connor J. Randall. Your insights are incredible. And to our researcher, Chris DeMarais. This series was written by Annie Weibel and Brendan Shea. It was researched by Brendan, Annie, and Chris DeMarais. Find the Serial Spirits podcast on all your podcasting platforms. This story has only just begun.